So, David Epstein, I summon you as my old friend onto this show to talk about issues of, of human performance, fundamentally. And it's something that I couldn't stop wondering about during the NFL playoffs, which is the biggest event in American sports. And there is no team inside of that world that draws more eyeballs than the Dallas Cowboys. And so when the Cowboys kicker this guy named Brett Maher, with basically the entirety of America watching, did this in the wildcard game. Extra point is pushed wide right. And that wasn't close off the foot of Maher. And then did it again. Extra point wow. is missed again. And Brett Maher has missed two tonight. And again. And now Maher misses again. Three missed extra points by Brett Maher to tie as many as he missed all regular season. And again. And now the drama of Brett Maher trying to hit an extra point. He's missed three tonight, four in a row. And he has done it again. They might be looking for a kicker next week. And literally again in this divisional round. Here's Brett Maher. <laughs> For the extra point, left hash, the kick is blocked. Oh, dear. Oh, boy. What did you see? I think some of what you just said outlines part of the issue, which is that you're talking about the biggest sporting event, the team with the biggest brand in the most important moment, and the fact is we know that all of these things, all of those eyeballs and all of that pressure can add up to causing someone to to choke, essentially. What's really going on there, though, is that something that they've known how to do a million times and can do suddenly moves into this whole different part of their brain where they're essentially a beginner, again, who does not know how to do it anymore. And then it becomes a snowball because they're asking themselves, why can I not do it? And the term of art for this condition, so to speak, is what? The yips. The yips, yeah, not exactly a scientific term, but sports scientists do use it for sure. And when they're using that term, and psychologists do, they're usually referring to a state of mind that literally interferes with your motor control. Mm. Right, so there have been some cases... Golf, probably most notably, is where people talk about the yips. And, it, and it's always in putting, right? It, it's not on, like, the 40-yard field goal or, or it's, like, free throws or throwing from second base. Well, this is the thing that's crazy about it being extra points specifically. Right. Because there was one stretch between the final game of the regular season and the wild card round where Brett Maher missed five consecutive extra points, right? His extra point percentage, just to put some math onto this, coming into that wild card round was 94.3%, Okay. According to our ESPN Daily calculations, the odds of him doing that, missing five extra points in a row, are about one in 1.7 million. But no, it's not random, actually, is what you're saying. This is, yeah, this is the yips. You know, in some ways, subjectively, I think it's almost even more amazing because you can, like, kick a bad extra point and still make it, right? <laughs> Your angle of launch can be off and you can still make it. <laughs> Yes. And so to actually fully miss them, it's pretty remarkable. 
you know, we know why it happens. We know some of the things you can do about it, but it's not easy. You like, I liken it to dieting, right? It's simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> and the fact is it becomes a snowball where pressure leads to pressure. And so it can be this sort of cascade like we've seen. I mean, I would argue that people are probably constantly choking at a much lower level, whether it's like presenting work at their office or whatever it is. You know, you don't see it in as measurable of a way of a missed extra point. But how often is it that they come away from giving their PowerPoint at work or whatever, like, oh, I should have said this. Why didn't I say that? That's such a, so it's because you choked. Yeah, parallel parking, I feel like. I am the Brett Maher of trying to get my car straight without trying five extra times. Well, I, did, I didn't even know you knew how to drive, but um, <laughs> I'm, you were a little bit of a, a late bloomer I, in that area. I, I was. Yeah, it took me about 25, 26. But, yeah. but how much harder is it when there's like someone at the curb standing to wait to see like if you tap the bumper in front and behind and if you oh <laughs> right? God. It makes it so much more difficult. I am on my hands for the audience already twitching. <laughs> We are all Brett Marr, by the way. You are too. Whether you realize it or not, every human being is at least a little bit like the current poster boy in sports for choking, flop sweating, crapping the bed, whatever term you want to use there. Even if you would never admit it. Even if the person, yeah, we all dream of being is obviously Joe Burrow. So today... David Epstein, best-selling author of The Sports Gene and Range, takes us inside the yips and our own brains, where we learn actual lessons that apply to both the very best athletes in the world and the people who watch them. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, January 27th, and this is ESPN Daily. Shopping for Father's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Father's Day. Whether you're shopping for your brother's first Father's Day or your Renaissance man grandpa, whose interests, of course, are all over the map, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price, anywhere from $25 and under to $100 and over, You can also sort by category, like cologne, watches, and more, or gift lists for items like, I don't know, your grill master or golfer in your life. You can also get top tech, from Beats headphones to JBL portable speakers, or if you're looking for top brands, you'll find gifts from Calvin Klein, Polo Ralph Lauren, and Columbia. So what are you waiting for? Father's Day is June 16th, and we'll be here before you know it. Macy's offers the ultimate gift guide to making selecting something special for dad incredibly easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So Dave, if people listen to this show, they know you as what I call you, rightfully, which is the best sports science writer in America. Arguably the world, you fight me on this whenever I begin to say these compliments, but it's true. You're a best-selling author twice over. You've done all this stuff. We've had you on to discuss Roger Federer, to discuss the science behind high-level athletic performance. You've debunked the 10,000 hours rule. But tell us about your background for people who are just catching up to all of this. Yeah, I mean, in my past life, I was training to be a scientist and got off that track because 
I didn't want to focus so narrowly on one thing new to the world, wanted to learn things new to me constantly. One thing led to another, became the science writer at Sports Illustrated, where like my whole job was, it was either investigating things like brain trauma and doping, or it was looking into human performance. Like how are people able to do the things that they do and why are they sometimes not able to do those things? And that led me to writing a book about genetics and sports and eventually to sort of linking some of these performance issues in sports to, to the wider world. So it really became a core part of my work. You also uh, choked against me in mini ping pong. We should always be sure to remember that in our time overlapping at Sports Illustrated. We should bring in the only person who was like an independent witness, which <laughs> would be not. Sarah Kwok and see what her memory is. <laughs> nope. Nope. She's fine. She's fine where she is. Let's do some fact checking here, buddy. <laughs> but wait, your other athletic endeavors beyond the mini ping pong uh, also inform your perspective on this, right? You were a high level college athlete. You you ran track. Yeah, yeah. I, ran, I was an 800 meter runner in college, came in as a walk-on and I exited as a university record holder, which meant that the level at which I was competing changed very quickly at a certain point. And so dealing with nerves became a huge deal because I was racing against people that I had been saying like, I wonder what that person does. Like, how do they train? And then all of a sudden you're on the starting line, like right next to them. And so in your quest to improve yourself, to better manage your nerves, yeah, what did you end up realizing about how the best of the best experiment to try and better themselves? Yeah, sort of did a bit of a, a, a tour of how do athletes prep for performance and not just athletes, but also musicians and public speakers and things like that. It ranged from I think sort of the very well-known, which were things like meditation and mindfulness, yeah. to the, the moderately known, which are sort of breathing and relaxation techniques that allow you to lower your blood pressure and your, your heart rate and things like that, to the not well-known at all, which was a group of elite athletes who were told by scientists, told by a group of scientists to be chased through the woods by a bear, basically, to get their <laughs> sort of... Adrenaline Wait. up, and then like their performance. Boy, it didn't seem like a, such a nerve-wracking thing after being chased by the bear. How did the bear chasing go for those guys? The bear was like trained and everything. Just, just say, but like you know, that's still going to get your fight or flight response activated. If anyone's ever had a near-death experience, you're like the thing that you have to do that seemed pressure-packed the next day. You're like, eh, no big deal. A little Shakespeare here, a little exit pursued by a bear ends up being <laughs> actually an athletic training regiment. But yeah, you yeah. mentioned the yips, and look, I, I, have, I have been long fascinated, morbidly curious really about this too. I've done a couple stories for Sports Illustrated about mental health and how this intersects with the yips. Mm -hmm. And the Brett Maher thing being the latest example of someone who, yes, is going to be Searching for solutions that reflect also on all of our brains. What are the other examples of the yips, which is known by other euphemisms, by the way, um, that have happened across professional sports? I would say, you know, one of the most famous cases was probably Chuck Knobloch, a second baseman who looked like he forgot in real time how to throw to first base. Right. For the New York Yankees. Yeah. Yes. And these are the problems that have become well documented over the last few days, throwing it into the stands. And ironically enough, the ball hit Keith Oberman's mother right between the eyes. She was all right. The glasses were broken. Like with Brett Maher, you're talking about the team where all eyes are on you, right? And so once things start to go bad, it, it might snowball. And that's like the easiest throw to make in all of baseball. And that's, that's sort of always, always how it is. Golf also 
again, another like mental sort of like physically precise endeavor also seems to have, yeah, these case studies. I mean, I remember David Duvall was one where he went from sort of his peak performance to like just not being able to make a putt at all. Tom Watson. Yeah. I mean, you know, some some of the legendary Ernie names. Els. By the time Ernie is done, he's six putted from less than two feet. Unfortunately, that's happened to an awful lot of players at some point in time in their career. He, there he, he steps away, gathers himself, and I can't even imagine how the, the wheels are spinning in your brain. But they're really famous cases. Like the guy who held the world record in the 100 meters for Usain Bolt, Asafa Powell, another Jamaican, he would set world records in races where no one was watching or in like the preliminary heat, like not the final, which is unheard of. The second heat of the 100. But here comes Asafa Powell. What a performance. Now that is a world record. And you could see he'd relax and be surprised that he would set the record. Huh. And then in the biggest races... Could almost see his shoulders up and tighten up, and someone pass him, and he'd and he'd like freeze. So he became known for he could run on the relay and run the best leg in the world. An hour later, after like <laughs> forgetting how to run the same way in in a hundred meters. So the variable there, the variable of the context, yeah, seemed to be everything. Absolutely, that once that pressure was on his his body acted fundamentally differently. I mean, it, it could happen to anyone. Like when, at one point, when I was sitting in on some sessions from a sports psychologist, when I was still a competitor and had us do these exercises where you walk on like a plank that's on the ground, basically. And it's, you are like, this is so easy, you know? And then he elevates it like eight feet in the air between like some, some posts that are holding it up. And all of a sudden it's a lot harder. And you're like putting your arms out to your side and trying to balance because- now, if mm. you fall, like you're not going to get really hurt, but it wouldn't be pleasant and it would be embarrassing because everyone else there is watching. And so this thing that you just did, the context has changed just a little bit. And all of a sudden you're like, heel in front of toe. Because this is the thing that happens is when you practice something a lot, you literally move it back to, like think of when you learned how to drive, which for you, Pablo, was like a week ago. Um, <laughs> and Born in Manhattan. <laughs> you you put, you know, you're like hand over hand, hands at six and nine and all this stuff. And then eventually you can just like space out and it happens on its own. What happens there is this skill that you're learning is moving from these higher conscious areas of your brain, like in the front of your head, back to your sort of so-called lizard brain where you can execute things without thinking. Yeah. When the context changes in a way that makes you too aware, you pull it right back from that automated part of your brain into the area where you're a beginner again. Oh, it's just terrifying. It's terrifying because the implication here is that it can sort of click into or click out of place. Yeah. Suddenly. Yeah, yeah. One of the more famous, infamous examples is Rick Ankiel. Uh, again, baseball player. Mm -hmm. um, this was the 2000 National League Division Series, a playoff scenario. It's game one. And he gets through the first two innings, right? Doesn't allow a run. And it's like, okay, this is a normal start. And then in the third inning, everything just falls apart. Another wild pitch over the head of Fernandez and back to the backstop. Wow! To the screen again, it hits off the backstop and right back to Hernandez. So Maddox didn't go anywhere. But Andrew Jones goes to second on the third wild pitch of the inning. I believe the tally in the end is four runs on two hits, four walks, five wild pitches, and... You know, he tries to shrug it off, but this becomes the thing that most people know Rick Ankiel for now. Yeah. And now another wild pitch. We'll go into the wildest Hall of Fame, I think. It changed everything about 
his career. It's like you're trapped in a mental prison and you can't get out of it because it consumes you. And that's the hardest part about it. It's feeling like you're alone and there's nowhere to go. I mean, the examples are so dramatic. You just brought to mind from the last Winter Olympics, Michaela Schifrin, right? Who I think just passed Lindsey Vonn. Yeah. I think is like the winningest skier of all time. Yeah. Where comes in and might win, I don't remember how many it was, five medals or something like that she has a shot for. Almost never falls. And, and again, it was it was like a Brett Maher thing where it's like if you calculated the odds of her missing gates several times in a right, row. skiing out. It would be like one in millions. And all of a sudden it was like it happened once and the first time it just seemed sort of like tough luck. But then after that, it was like trying to be too exact and not going with the flow. I remember one of the sports psychologists who studies this kind of stuff told me that if you're like playing tennis and you want to try to mess up your opponent, you shouldn't talk trash to them. It's like when you come to switch sides, you should go to the net and be like, you know how you you like angled your arm on that one <laughs> shot? Like, how did you do that? That was really amazing because you want them thinking about like, wait, how, how, how should I angle my arm, right? You want them de-automating those processes. Well, this whole thing that the human brain does that I think we can all relate to, which is when something goes wrong, we think about it more. Yeah. Seems to be part of why this is like a curse. And by the way, when I say it's a curse, I, I, I do remember talking to a guy, Steve Blass, another pitcher in Major League Baseball. And this was called like at one point Steve Blass disease because he had struggled with it. In 1972, I won 19 games for the Pirates in the National League and finished second in the Cy Young voting. The next year, for whatever reason, to this day, I lost my control and it never did come back. It was also called, though, like almost witchcrafty things, like the creature. And I think that's because it's so weird. It's what's known as an ironic process where you try harder to do something and that makes increasingly less likely that you can do it or makes the opposite more likely to happen or like, Dostoevsky wrote about this, this famous thought experiment where try not to think of a white bear. And mm. if you tell people that, they can't like stop thinking of a white bear. So these are examples of ironic processes where it's just like, who built these stupid brains? And I think that's why it's so fascinating to people too, that it's watching someone try harder and harder and become less and less successful. I think it really runs contrary to our intuition of how stuff should work, which is why it feels so mystical. And so psychologically here, what are the mechanisms here, clinically speaking, that are creating this very thing? When you first start learning something, a skill, it's in your prefrontal cortex, right? There's like very human part of your brain that is very large in our heads particularly, and you're thinking about how to do it. You're thinking explicitly, you're doing explicit processing. How do I do this? Where do I put my hand? Where do I put my foot? All these things. And then you practice it more and more and you stop thinking about those things. Your, your movements become smooth and integrated. And instead of thinking about where do I put my foot, where do I put my hand, you just think about the goal, right? Like trying to hit the free throw or whatever it is. Mm. You've ceased to need to think about how to do that skill. You've ceased to need to think about how to ride a bike. But that is still very much there. And as soon as something brings it back to your prefrontal cortex, that can be something small or big, you're exactly back to being a beginner again, where you're thinking about the individual components of what has to be done. Yeah. So that's sort of what's going on internally to you, right? But outside of you, what's going on is people tend to start to focus on the implications. Mm. They switch from what's known as an approach strategy to an avoidance strategy. So 
approach strategy is when you're like, I really want to hit this. Like, I, you know, I really want to win this game. Like, this will be great if I do it. I know I can do this. And avoidance strategy is like, please don't miss this. I can't miss another extra point. Just don't let it go wrong, which of course is an ironic process where it becomes more likely to go wrong. Well, you know, it, it gives new meaning to the whole thing of how we say, like a basketball player, when he's on fire, he's, he's unconscious, right? But what you're saying is that actually that is literally what ideally an athlete is doing because the brain, again, this, this whole notion of like, let's talk about our stupid brains. <laughs> our brains, it's not just one thing. We think of it as a singular entity, but actually there are multiple aspects of it, these competing parts inside of it. And oh, yeah. getting them to cooperate feels like the key to this. Yeah, there's a bunch of people in there and they're, they're fighting amongst themselves. Uh, you know, like we, we contain multitudes. Like there are, there are processes competing, right? And like anyone who's done any kind of sport, like when you're, when you're hurting and you keep going, right? Those are signals in your brain that are competing against one another um, for, for what you should do. So when someone's performing really well, you say like, they're just unconscious, right? Michael Jordan, when he did the famous shrug where I hit like seven three-pointers or what, however many it was, and he's like, I don't know what's going on, right? That's like, great, don't think <laughs> about it too much. Don't worry about what's going on. But the question of how we stop worrying is obviously, you know, it's harder than it sounds. And you had mentioned two strategies that human beings like to use. One, the approach strategy, right? Where we think about the success we want. The other one being the avoidance strategy, which seems a lot less healthy, by the way, where we just think about avoiding failure, which makes us more likely to fail and keep failing. And then we spiral into panicking about how everyone is now obviously laughing at us fail over and over again. And at that point, I feel like we try to advise our friends normally that, you know, hey, people aren't actually paying as much attention to us as we think. Normally, that's good advice. And it's advice that psychologists would give regularly to someone who is struggling with pressure at work, right? They would tell them about the so-called spotlight effect, which is the fact that you, you feel like a spotlight's on you whenever you do something not quite right. And, and so that leads you into that kind of counterproductive thinking where you're thinking too much about what you're doing. Spotlight effect is the idea that, that you think people are watching you much more than they really are, right? You're, right? you're not the center of their universe the same way that you're the center of your universe, and that's a good thing. They're not going to remember that dumb thing you said in that meeting. Right. It's, not as, it's a bigger deal to you than it is to them. The, the tricky thing in this situation, you know, where we're talking about like a Yankee second baseman or like a Cowboys kicker is <laughs> everyone kind of is watching them. They, they can't like plausibly yep. go to therapy and the psychologist be like, you know, you probably thought this was a bigger deal, but everybody else really probably didn't even notice. You know, you're like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> a, a sports podcast definitely isn't going to construct something of a montage to relive some of this stuff when they start an episode about what's actually going on here. Definitely not going to happen. Exactly. Brett Meyer's probably out there like, oh, Lord, don't let me miss this one. Pablo's <laughs> going to be all over this if I do this again. Just give me one. Yeah, in no way will Stephen A. Smith yell about this. Do not worry. Absolutely not. Never happens. Okay, but after the break, Dave, I do need you to advise the non-famous athletes who are listening to this podcast and I need you to help our stupid human brains be just a little less stupid.
Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs of real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So the thing that has been extra compelling, though, about this postseason, Dave, is that we have seen both sides of the spectrum, it feels like. We've seen Brett Maher choking, suffering through the yips, it seems, on the one end. And then on the other end, we have truly the personification of cool in Joe Burrow, a guy whose literal nickname is Joe Cool, because he is also the sort of guy who, as a rookie at his introductory press conference, says stuff like this. I'm excited more so than nervous, I would say. Does that emotion surprise you, that, that you, you aren't nervous? I mean, it's human nature. Absolutely not. <laughs> Have you, uh, you ever heard anything else about me about being nervous? That part, the part of our brain that can function so damn smooth. What does the science say about what's going on there in relation to what we just discussed? First of all, I think it's important to point out that it's well known that there are individual differences about this. Because of messenger chemicals in your brain, you know, dopamine is one that, that people have heard of a lot. Mm. Some people will actually need to be in a high-pressure competition situation in order to perform their best. And those people sometimes, like, practice might be a little more of a struggle for them because it doesn't have that competitive aspect. They need that bear. They need the bear to chase them. That's right. That's right. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum are people who really get over-aroused by the competition atmosphere where they can really nail something in practice and then they have trouble with it in the game. Actually, someone who talked to me about this in an interesting way was Sue Enquist, who was the UCLA softball coach, the most winning. I think she has like the best winning record of any NCAA coach in anything ever. Yeah, won like 84% of her games, which is the best percentage of any college softball coach with at least 800 career wins. She said she would think of athletes as achievers and the competitors. And the achievers were like, you tell them to do something, they're going to go all out on it no matter what it is. You might have to manage them to be less intense in training. And then you have to manage their nerves in the game because they're like over aroused and focused on achievement. And how am I going to look and all those things? And the competitors who you might have to work on to make their practices high quality because they're not, they're just not geeked up for practice. Mm. But then when it comes to the competition, it brings out the best in them. And I, I would imagine that NFL quarterback quite strongly selects for people who don't tend to get like past peak arousal in, in competition. Well, it's interesting. I, I remember talking to the Rockets when they had Dwight Howard. And Dwight Howard, the big man, you know, uh, famously terrible at shooting free throws in games, could drain them, was unconscious, <laughs> draining them in practice. Yeah. And so the people who play as if they are as comfortable 
as others are at practice. A, a Joe Burrow who is processing, right? Like, again, this is all happening in the span of two and a half seconds for someone like Burrow behind a Bengals offensive line that is broken. Yeah. How is he doing all of that at that speed, at that confidence level? Sometimes athletes will talk about, especially maybe quarterbacks, about the game slowing down. And the game is not slowing down, obviously. What's happening there is that they've learned through all their training to see the field like a chessboard, where like if you put eye tracking glasses on me and saw me play quarterback, like I would look at like one receiver and I'd see he's covered and then I'd look at the other one. And and so if we put those same glasses on a player like Joe Burrow, what's he seeing? He's looking at spaces between players on the field that allow him to judge what's what's coming before it happens. So he's anticipating, kind of seeing the future. And when athletes say that they that the game feels like it's slowing down, it's really because instead of looking at the individual parts like I would be, they're grasping this sort of holistic aspect of the field, unconscious, completely unconsciously. So what's really going on with him is he's he's executing skills that are in the, you know, sometimes colloquially called the lizard part of his brain. He's not bringing his prefrontal cortex online. Like all the viewers watching him at home who are like, what's going to happen next? And thinking toward the end of the game, he's in in the moment, you know, what what the famous psychologist Mihai Chicks and Mihai called flow, mm. where you stop thinking and you just allow these things that you've done a million times to just wash over you and sort of happen. And there, there are ways to help sort of force that. I don't know what his strategies are to keep his prefrontal cortex offline, sure, essentially. But even simple things like, singing to yourself or counting backwards in your head. So you occupy that part of your brain that would cause you to think too much and let the sort of automated stuff just execute. Wait, you mentioned singing as one way to keep yourself from overthinking too much in the moment. And it reminds me of Dirk Nowitzki, of course, the NBA Hall of Famer, one of the great shooters of all time, who admitted that he would quietly sing to himself for that very reason at the free throw line, and every single time, apparently, he was singing, perhaps owing to their uh, shared German roots, David Hasselhoff, talking about how, you know, he had everything that money could buy, but freedom, I had none. You know, I, I don't know if I can recommend that song particularly, but um, <laughs> that idea of singing to yourself is perfect because singing will occupy your prefrontal cortex, that higher conscious area of your brain that you want offline when you're doing something that you know you know how to do. It actually, since you mentioned basketball, it also reminds me of, you know, Edan Ravine? Yes, trainer. Yeah, coach. Yeah. yeah. Like not not traditional Right. Uh, sort of guru almost he became. Yeah, and, and I, I remember seeing him and he's, there's like a quick clip of him and I think it's a Nike commercial and he's like training Carmelo, Anthony, and he's he's like throwing tennis balls at him while Carmelo's trying to dribble and he has to catch them. And he came up with this stuff intuitively, but the reason I think that some of what he was doing makes sense is that he would like force guys to do simple math problems while they're doing some dribbling drill. or or And again, I think that was occupying that prefrontal cortex so that you're learning the skill in the, you know, in the unconscious phase. And that's, that's sort of where you want to keep it. So singing, singing to yourself, counting backwards is another one I've heard some sports psychologists say, 
And again, this is with things, this is not in the early learning phase necessarily. This is like, yeah, when you have already mastered something. Yeah, and your challenge is executing it when it really matters. Yes, and so in terms of executing when it really matters, I do want to offer and seek out for myself solutions to, yeah, the problem of pressure. What are the other techniques that you have come across that can make us a little more Joe Cool and a little less yippy? I think manufacturing high-pressure situations, but that aren't actually that high stakes necessarily. Like if you're nervous talking to strangers, then like force yourself to talk to a few people in an elevator. They'll get off at a different floor probably. And like the worst case will be, you'll feel uncomfortable for 30 seconds. You know, (laughs) when I was first reporter approaching people on the street, I did stuff like that because I was very shy about those sorts of things. Mm. So trying to find a place where you can do a bit of, a bit of practice like you play, where you're in that environment and you realize it's not the end of the world. Like I can deal with this so that you're not feeling that pressure for the first time. I would have varied something up. Like if I were thinking about Brett Maher, like once he missed like three in a row, you're like, all right, this isn't, this isn't going to come back on its own. At that point, I would have thought about maybe moving him back mm. and making the, the kick more difficult because some of what's probably going on there is like, this is so easy. I know I can do this. You know, make it more difficult where he has to go into being like a normal field goal kicker again. Wait, I now admittedly kind of love the insane idea of the Cowboys intentionally taking delay of game penalties on an extra point just to move their kicker back to like normal field goal lengths. (laughs) But the other thing you were just saying, that you forced yourself to talk to strangers in elevators to get over your own nerves, that to me is interesting, Dave, because you also now speak for a living, right? You gave a TED Talk that was watched by like 15 million people. And so as a former D1 athlete and now a a current public speaker, what else did you do personally that might also be useful to others? When when I was a runner and would get very nervous before important races, I learned some very sort of explicit tactical techniques that were things like uh, controlled breathing and laying still for like 10 minutes before you do something, just a stillness and tuning into how your body feels. And so you can learn things like that, these voluntary relaxation techniques but also sort of a self-monitoring. I mean, I felt those same nerves, that sort of fight-or-flight response when I became a public speaker. And one, one of the things that sort of helped me when I was on the road is when I switched from a manual to an electric toothbrush. How's that for a segue? Um, <laughs> because I got one that it has like a light on it and a pressure sensor. So if you push too hard, it makes like a different vibration noise and the red light lights up. And I don't think I had ever, literally ever seen that red light when I was at home but I started to notice it would be going off when I was on the road, like in a hotel in the morning before I had to give a talk. And so it alerted me to the fact that like in the two hours before a talk, I'm pressing really hard with my toothbrush. You know, so then I started taking my pulse and I realized, oh, my, my heart rate's up a little bit and I'm, I'm too nervous. And so that started becoming like a sort of check-in for me to say like, oh, I need to slow down for a minute and do one thing at a time. Yeah. Like one of the things that would happen to me and happens to a lot of people when they're getting a sort of type of yips is in their head, they're doing multiple things at a time. They're thinking ahead to what they're about to do. They're thinking ahead to the repercussions. They're rushing in their head. And so I would really slow down and try to do just one thing at a time and be wherever I was and focus, you know, on an external mantra, one that I had from running that I, that I brought to speaking, which was you're, you're here for a reason. Mm. Sometimes would write it on my arm and things like that so that you don't have to hold it in your head. And so really took a lot of those things from running. And it didn't mean that I don't get nervous, but just as eventually became the case in running, the same thing happened in speaking where 
it ceased to impair my performance and sort of almost became like, oh, these are good. Like these nerves are getting me ready for peak performance. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had the experience of like listening to someone explain something very personal and genuine and real only to want to tell you a cliche that I had dismissed as anodyne and useless, which is that you're talking about taking it one play at a time. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I was about it's, to say that, and it's literally that. It's the most boring thing that a human being can say in an interview. But I think that cliche comes from a real place, which is that if you want to perform at your peak, you don't want to be thinking too much down the road. You don't want to be thinking about two extra points from now or what happens if you miss the next one. You want to just be really where you are at that moment. And then sometimes things are still going to go, go poorly, right? It's, it's, a, it's a probability game. What we settle on here at the end is something that I feel like everybody, Brett Maher, you and me and everyone else could use a reminder of, which is that even if this stuff happens to you, even if you choke, even if you get the yips, even if you're embarrassed, humiliated, in front of God, country, and Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> you are not broken, right? Like, this is not something that you need to be cursed by forever. You can, you can fix yourself, so to speak. And it's simple stuff. It's all the skill is still there. And you can fix it quickly. You can learn some voluntary relaxation. You can learn how to check in with yourself and do one thing at a time. You can generate some practice situations that sort of simulate the situation you're going to be in. You can write a, an external mantra on your hand or on your whiteboard or whatever that you look at when you want to take your prefrontal cortex offline. You can sing David Hasselhoff, right? Like these are pretty simple things that with a little practice works. And so I think the good news here is this is something that not only can be fixed, but can be fixed quickly. In other words, you are here for a reason. Well said. David Epstein, thank you for not choking. <laughs> it's my pleasure. L lucky for you, all of your chokes get edited out so the world doesn't have to see them <laughs> like, like Brett Meyer. That would be my tip. Get a staff of producers to make you look and sound better than you actually are. <laughs> there you go. It's good advice for everybody. <laughs> I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andres Soto, happy birthday, Andres, and the tenant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Deontay Epps, Kendall Majette, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs>